Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Hello and welcome to you all, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on this Wednesday, November 29th. Great to have you aboard the program this afternoon. A fair bit to get to. We're going to do a bit of an around the world covering a few different topics. I won't even pretend there is a common theme weaving them all together, except insofar as the common theme is me, because I'll be the one talking about them all. But we'll uh, do it with a couple of guests. My uh, two, Actually, a couple of people that I would say are, are old friends of mine will be on the show today. Paige McFarland. Pearson from the Fraser Institute, who's been on the program in the past, will be here in just a little bit of time as we talk about uh, independent schooling and why more and more parents are turning away from the public schools, even when they aren't in that economic category you'd assume can afford to do that. And we'll also be later on chatting about a guy named Andrew Tate. Now, if you don't know who Andrew Tate is, I'd say you're very fortunate. If you do know, I think this will be a very interesting discussion that I'm going to have with Jonathan Van Maren, who is the author of a number of books, but also a great investigative piece he wrote for a European publication about Andrew Tate that I think is worthy of a little bit of a close look. I, can you have a little bit of a close look? It's worthy of a close look anyway, but we'll, we'll get to all that. I want to start off with, uh, well, I'll start with a specific headline, and then I'm going to kind of broaden it out into the bigger picture here of why this is so relevant. There was a, a story this week that jumped out at me where the special interlocutor on residential schools in Canada, a woman by the name of Kimberly Murray, has said she is still waiting. That's a direct quote from the Global News Report, still waiting for a bill criminalizing what she calls residential school denialism. Now, how exactly she defines residential school denialism, I don't know. But if it's anything like the law that is currently on the books regarding the Holocaust, this criminalizes anyone who downplays or denies the Holocaust. It makes it a criminal offense to do so, except I think in like a private one-on-one -on -one conversation. That's the carvo. You don't quote me on that. But it basically would prevent the public denial or downplaying of the Holocaust. Now, if you like me think that the Holocaust happened and was horrific and killed 6 million Jewish lives and was one of the most atrocious displays of anti-Semitism in the world, you'd say, well, yes, Holocaust denial is terrible. And I would agree. But terrible does not and should not, in my view, automatically equate to criminal. Now, in the case of residential school so-called denialism, we have an added complication, which is that there is no universally accepted understanding of exactly what happened and how it happened. We don't actually have among, I mean, even if you look among historians, and I, I studied Canadian history in university, if you look among historians, there is no universality in what the residential school narrative is. Now, I'd say generally speaking, people can agree that residential schools were on balance bad, which is why they no longer exist. And yes, we can find a whole bunch of stories of people saying, well, I went to a residential school and had a, a fine experience and I went and had a great experience. And then you have others who say, you know, this ruined my family at, at the time. It's ruined my ancestors' lives. And, and I'm not going to sit here and say that we should disregard either of those perspectives. And I think it's actually tremendously shameful how many people want to disregard one narrative because they feel it goes against the narrative they would prefer to believe. As in all cases throughout history, we see that there is good and bad in people. There's good and bad in humanity. And residential schools are no exception to this. Now, at the same time, 
we have heard some very damning allegations that were linked to these announcements of so-called unmarked graves, many of which were not how they were reported. So if you were to get up and say, well, actually, I want to see the results of your studies that said there were uh, X number of bodies outside this school. If you were to say that, is that denialism? Is that downplaying? If you were to say, well, yes, there was a former grave there, but there's no evidence that anything untoward happened to students. This was just a community gravesite. Is that downplaying? Is that denialism? I don't know. A lot of the work that True North has done, mainly by my colleague, uh, Candace Malcolm, has challenged the mainstream media narrative about residential schools. Now, I think this is very important journalistic work, and I'm glad that Candace Malcolm was doing that work. This is stuff that when she was saying it was treated as heretical, but you fast forward a couple of years and a lot more people are saying these things and things like it. Would that be criminalized if this activist had her way? I think it would be. Now, the Liberal government has said, and it has a new justice minister now than it did before, which was David Lametti. Now it's Arif Farhani. Uh, the justice minister in Canada has said the federal government, the Justin Trudeau government is considering, that's their word, they are considering the measures advocated and recommended by Kimberly Murray, which means officially the federal government has not ruled out the idea that it will outlaw the denial of residential schools, residential school denialism. Now, this is, I think, quite disgraceful for a number of reasons. Number one, I believe in free speech. And I believe that free speech is important, not just because free speech is an inherent good, but because I do not trust the government to decide where and how to draw a boundary. The other side of this is that we're talking about a live issue here. For the government, I mean, look, you can find a few people that are going to get up on the Holocaust and say, well, you know, actually, maybe it wasn't six million. And the, the United States Holocaust Memorial Museum has this page, which is interesting, in which they talk about Holocaust denial and distortionism. And they, they include those two because they realize that a lot of people will make arguments about the Holocaust saying, yeah, it happened, but, but there were fewer victims and but it happened differently. And oh, they died of malnutrition. And most of these are coming from a place of wanting to to downplay or really wanting to deny the Holocaust. Now, even so, there needs to be room in scholarship and academia for people to challenge even controversially narratives. And when I say room, I'm talking about legal room. I think we have the right to denounce people as kooks. We have the right to denounce people as anti-Semites if we think they are the case. And on the residential schools, it's the same thing with the exception of the fact that there is a lot murkier of, there's a lot more murky of a narrative on what happened, especially, and I'd say in large part due to media reporting on this and the media malfeasance that we've seen. So I absolutely and vehemently reject the idea of criminalizing worldviews that are controversial or offensive to people or are heterodox, which is to say they stand apart from the conventional orthodoxy of an era. But I absolutely do not trust the government to do this. And I, look, I, the Holocaust denial ban is one that was advocated in, by a couple of conservatives even. And I thought that was quite shameful because uh, imagine if we see a criminalization of Islamophobia and we see a criminalization of this and a criminalization of that. And all of a sudden, the criminal code is being used as a tool to censor and silence criticism 
that belongs in the public square, that should have a right to exist. And look, I tell this story all the time. I, I, meant, I made this comment years ago before this criminal ban on Holocaust NL came up in which I was talking about free speech and I made just the standard uncontroversial to me libertarian position that you know people should be legally allowed to debate the Holocaust. And I caveated that by saying they shouldn't and we should denounce people that deny the Holocaust and all of that. And then of course, what does that like leftist rag press progress do? They run a headline that, oh, Andrew Lawton thinks the Holocaust is debatable, which is not what I said, except insofar as if we're talking about the literal meaning of the word subject to debate without being arrested. So absolutely free speech is my hill to die on. And I think it should be for other people. You know, I, I heard John Carpe, who's been on this show a number of times from the JCCF say recently, and I think he was quoting someone else, but I can't remember who he was quoting. So I get to quote John Carpe on this, that if you were to strip away every right and freedom that you have in this country, except for one, freedom of speech or freedom of expression, you could use that freedom of expression to win back your other rights. And in that sense, he was saying that freedom of expression was and is the most important fundamental freedom in Canada, because that's the freedom that you can use to argue and advocate and unlock the other freedoms. Now, I thought that was a very good way of, of putting it. Now, obviously, we have a hierarchy here. I mean, if in some, I don't want to get to, I don't want to start geeking out too much on political theory. So I'll put that aside, except, you know, when I go back to not trusting the government, that's a very important aspect of this because right now we have the liberal government doing monumental changes on internet regulation. And one of the things they've tried to do, well, they have succeeded in doing, is bringing online content into the orbit regulatory, like the regulatory orbit of the CRTC. They've also done this stupid online news act where now to uh, share your links on Facebook and Google, if you're a news site and to have other people share them, you've got to uh, get money from those companies. So the news companies just say, well, screw that. We're uh, just going to ban news links altogether. That's been Facebook's position. But the government has also promised another bill, which you've heard me talking about. Now they've said this is coming imminently. And this is a bill that would regulate what the government calls online hate. Now, how do they define online hate? Well, the first draft of the bill that was tabled a couple of years back said speech that is likely to foment detestation or vilification. But this would have been accompanied by requirements that this content not be communicated online. So very likely we would see takedown orders that social media companies had to start censoring and zapping content because the federal government claims it is illegal. Now, why that is so important is because imagine if you take all of these other things they want to talk about, like residential school denialism. If you share an article that Facebook or, well, let's assume Facebook allows news. You share an article that Facebook or Google or Twitter or you do a video and YouTube has it and they think, those companies think that might be residential school denialism. Well, all of a sudden we have a federal government that's created this regulatory framework in which that can be zapped. If they don't take it offline, they can be fined huge money. And you as the person who shared that can be prosecuted in some way by a human rights commission. Or, I mean, maybe even a, the criminal courts if we're talking about a society in which residential school denialism is deemed to be a criminal offense. So all of these things are incredibly dangerous and incredibly important. And it's why I continue to harp so much on the idea of freedom of speech. 
Like we had up until a decade ago in Canada, Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act, which was a provision that allowed for the prosecution of people who blogged, basically. It was the, you know, infamously referred to uh, as the blogger ban because it went after people like Kathy Shadle, who did that like online hate thing online. But like it wasn't even hate. It was just what a bunch of human rights commissars decided they would say was hateful. The recharged version of this, the introduced version that the liberals have promised, does a lot more and is a lot more tuned in to the digital era that we have now. And I know that we are going to see mass censorship provisions unless there is a serious change in governmental priorities, which I think at this point could only come about through a change in government altogether. So, I mean, look, at the core, here are the two takeaways from this. Number one, free speech is important. It's my hill to die on. I think it should be yours. And the situation is not good for people that like, value, and respect free speech right now. The second one, and this is like just the standard libertarian ethos, I think, do not trust the government. They'll always do you dirty. So uh, with that, I, you know, a lot of parents, I will say, are not exactly trusting the government right now as well, especially when it comes to education. Now, we've seen in recent months mass protests of parents and families against gender ideology in schools. We've seen parental rights bills that have come in the New Brunswick case in particular, but also in Saskatchewan. And we've seen more and more parents fundamentally deciding they do not want their children to be in public schools. This was the subject of a new report from my friend Paige McPherson from the Fraser Institute. She is the Associate Director of Educational Policy there. Paige, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Andrew. So, so what did your study show? So what we found when we look at the numbers uh, in Nova Scotia in particular, and, and really this is it's not unique to Nova Scotia, it really is um, more of a national trend, we see uh, a greater proportion of students going to independent schools in Nova Scotia. And why that is um, noteworthy is that there really is no what they call school choice or what we would refer to as school choice um, here in Nova Scotia, which basically means that um, there's not uh, tax dollars, parents' tax dollars don't follow their children to the school of their choice the way that they do in half of the provinces in Canada. So every province outside of Ontario and uh, Atlantic Canada has that kind of a policy in place. In Nova Scotia, we don't have that. So what that means is that it's it's a more significant financial sacrifice for families to send their children to an independent school instead of attending their local government public school. And yet we see increasing enrollment to these schools here in Nova Scotia. Now, when you say independent school, I, I know it's a broad category, but are we talking predominantly about religious private schools? Are we talking about schools that just have a different approach to education or just the, the sort of conventional uniformed uh, private school like an upper Canada college that people have in their minds or like, well, what's the breakdown in Nova Scotia? It really uh, incorporates all of those types of schools. So we did a, a paper looking at the, the breakdown of the different types of independent schools across Canada. And it really is a diverse landscape of independent schools that exist across Canada. I think that, as you say, the kind of stereotypical image that pops into people's heads is that kind of uniformed prep school. But that really is not the majority. It's actually quite the minority of the independent schools. In other words, private schools in Canada. Canada. Um, and, and so here in Nova Scotia, same as in every province, it, it includes some religious private schools or cultural private schools. So families who are seeking that option um, for a cultural or religious focus, it includes 
um, alternative education schools. So that might be a Waldorf school, a Montessori school, um, a progressive art school could include anything like that, a STEM school. Um, and it also includes those uh, those elite prep schools, although that is not the majority um, of, of what the independent school landscape looks like really right across the country. I know. I mean, you were on a panel we did on on this topic more broadly a couple of months back on on this program, and one of the things that came up was that the socioeconomic class, if you will, of parents that make this choice is not what a lot of people assume. It's not only the wealthy that are doing this. Which, when you bring up the point you raised earlier about how the money doesn't follow the schools, we're talking about parents making a big sacrifice here, which means it must really mean something to them to do it. Absolutely. So yeah, there's there's lots of families who are just you know, not buying a second vehicle, not going on vacation, not um, doing any number of things um, so that they can make those sacrifices for their children to send them to an independent school. It's the same for families that homeschool, which often involves, you know, one family member sacrificing an income, one parent staying home, at least for most of the time with the child or children. And so it is a financial sacrifice for these families. And, and what our data shows, I don't have Nova Scotia specific numbers, but I was just looking at the numbers on this in British Columbia as an example. Um, and if you take out, so in British Columbia, as an example, those elite private schools that we were talking about are about 5%, just over 5% of the independent schools in the province. So a, a very small minority of those schools. When you take those out of the picture, um, the income gap between families that send their kids to government public schools and families that send their kids to an independent school is only 1.9%. So a very, very small gap in income between those government public school families and independent school families. When you throw those elite private schools back into the mix, the gap is 14%. So it's, it's still not a dramatic gap. Um, but if you take those out, which I think gives a more fair kind of look at the picture, only 1.9%. So we're, we're not looking at the sort of stereotypical picture that sometimes pops into people's heads about independent schools in Canada. What we really see is that it's a lot of families that for one reason or another are seeking an alternative form of education for their kids. It could be something related to the philosophy or the educational approach of the school as we just talked about, but it could also be something like my kid has experienced bullying in their classroom at their local government public school. There's too much violence in my local local government public school. Whatever it might be, there's there's a number of reasons that, that families are seeking these alternative options. Um, and it certainly it doesn't really fit that that typical stereotype. And there's there's often the the argument that comes up from critics of of programs like school choice programs that I they talked about off the top. You know where some of parents' tax dollars follows their child to the school of their choice, enabling more lower and middle class families to send their kids to the school that better fits them, to send their kids to an independent school or homeschool, or in Alberta's case, a charter school. Um, and part of that criticism um, that, that people will, will say is that, well, you're taking money away from government public schools. But the reality is that these policies actually save taxpayer dollars at the end of the day. But they also, the, the reality is also, and, and certainly here in Nova Scotia, where we're looking at an increasing number of, of families sending their kids to independent schools, we're already funneling more and more money into government public schools year after year after year. Actually, Nova Scotia saw the second largest increase in funding to, um, to government public schools um, over the time period in our latest study, um, it, which was, uh, I, I believe, 2012 to, to the most recent year, 2022. Um, so that we, we are seeing this, this really large growth in spending in government public schools. Um, so, so one of those criticisms is, well, we could take that money and we could improve things in government public schools. 
they're already getting money, throwing more money at the problem, um, which is already happening, is obviously not solving the problem. So there is a lot that we could do to improve our government public schools for sure. But these programs that enable lower and middle class children to attend independent schools for those families, as we mentioned, that are making sacrifices are really not the appropriate target here. Uh, just to broaden this out for a moment, Paige, is the the rise in Nova, I mean, I, obviously I know this study looks at Nova Scotia, but from data you've seen elsewhere, is Nova Scotia a unique example or is this really a, a more national trend uh, with the exception of perhaps Alberta, which I, I know does offer parents a, a fair bit more choice? So in terms of enrollment patterns, no, this is not at all unique to Nova Scotia. Every single province in the country recorded growth in the enrollment uh, uh, to independent schools as a share of the student population. And uh, and the other thing is homeschooling. That's also go going up right across the country. Um, so our study looked at uh, 2001 to 2019-20. Um, and so it's, it's a broad kind of look there. And we see that and again, in every single province, there is an, a, a greater share of students that are now attending independent schools, growth in that enrollment, and a greater share of students that are homeschooling, grow to, growth in that enrollment as well. Homeschooling is a very small proportion of kids overall in Canada um, that are that are making that choice for their family, but it is also growing. So really, the I guess the takeaway here is that more and more families despite in half the country it being very financially difficult because in Ontario, in Nova Scotia and across Atlantic Canada, there's absolutely no financial support for those families. They're paying their tax dollars to government public schools and none of those tax dollars are following, following their child to the school that they're actually choosing for them. And yet they are still making that choice. They're still making the financial sacrifice involved. Um, and, and so basically a greater share of families are just seeking alternative education for their kids. But it's not only good news for those families because research shows that actually having these kinds of school choice policies in place, which enable more children to find the schools that are the best fit for them, actually improves results right across the board. So one of the takeaways for Nova Scotia, for example, or a province like Ontario might be that enabling even more families to make these choices would be a good idea because not only does research show in an increase in uh, student achievement in, in student tests, but it also shows reduced absences, reduced suspensions, just better results across the board, not only in the, those independent schools that families are choosing, but actually in the government public schools as well, because a rising tide lifts all boats, right? The competition is good, and really that's what is uh, borne out in the research. So if, if provinces like Nova Scotia, like Ontario, are looking to increase the diversity in their education systems, these kinds of school choice policies where the money follows the student are a really great place to start. Well, and just, I mean, one glaring thing that comes up from a policy perspective is that you'd think, in theory, public schools would be improving as students leave because the, uh, the they're still getting the same amount of money but having to serve a fewer amount of students. But that's not happening. So the issue is not a funding one, which is, I think, what we often hear from a lot of advocates. Well, we need to better fund public schools. Yeah, I also just want to be clear about something. It's not that they're doing... Um you know, the, the sort of the old refrain that, oh, we have to do more with less. They're actually getting just more overall. And it's, it's, it, that accounts for enrollment growth and that accounts for inflation. So per student, inflation adjusted spending in government public schools is up across the board. Um, the only two provinces where that is, is not the case, where per student, so overall spending increase, but per student inflation adjusted spending in Saskatchewan and Alberta has decreased. In every other province, and certainly nationally, when you look at the average, 
has increased. So, so even if there are students that are leaving, going to other options, we're still pouring more money into the government public school system on a per student basis. There's still more money going in. So more money really isn't solving the problem. It, there's not been a year where, okay, we're seeing large decreases and this, that can account for the flaws that we're seeing in the government public school system. Um, I think there's there's other issues that we should be looking at, you know, whether it's that we've moved away from the kind of content rich curricula in our public schools, where we give kids that solid foundation of, of fact based learning that makes it easier for them to then have critical thinking and comprehension skills later. We've moved away from phonics in our reading programs, for example. A lot of the policies have made it more difficult for teachers to actually have leadership and empowerment over their classrooms. And so we do see this increase in, in bullying and classroom violence. Um, and uh, and it's, it's, there's, there's big challenges for sure that, that we're facing in our government public school systems. More money is not solving the problem. So perhaps we should be looking at you know, the bigger issues here that are at play. Well, you can read uh, Paige's latest on this at the Fraser Institute website. More Nova Scotia families choosing independent schools despite lack of government support. Uh, Paige McPherson, always a pleasure. Thanks for coming on today. Thank you so much, Andrew. All right. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, moving along here. Well, I, hang on. I, I want to just do a little bit of an indulgence before we go. Let's uh, let's put this photo up that I, I sent you earlier, Sean. Yeah, that's uh, me on the right there and on the left. Well, I guess just center. Right? Sitting next to me, my old friend, uh, Jonathan Van Maren. You've heard him and seen him on the show before. Fantastic author and pro-life activist. And I often credit him for being the inspiration behind my book, The Freedom Convoy, in the sense that he gave me the kick in the pants to write the book myself because I kept complaining that I wanted to read it. We were actually on Friday evening at a uh, book event in Norwich that I had the great privilege of speaking to. That's uh, in a small town in southwestern Ontario. And I just did, kind of on the spur of the moment said, well, Jonathan, why don't you just sit down and interview me and do like an actual fireside chat? Oftentimes the term gets misused. But as you can see, we were uh, genuinely in front of a fire there. Well, as it happens, Jonathan co-authored a fantastic piece in the European Conservative that I think is a must read for pretty much anyone and everyone who's ever been paying attention to this Andrew Tate business. Now, I want to say on this show, I've shied away from it not because I, I'm afraid of tackling this issue head on, but I've shied away from it oftentimes because I believe people like Andrew Tate don't deserve any sympathy. And I think people on the right oftentimes uh, very instinctively like to respond to people being cancelled or attacked in the media with the presumption that there must be something virtuous about those people because so often cancel culture is unjust and unfair. But Andrew Tate is the exception to the rule. I think he deserves to be condemned. He deserves to be criticized. This is a man who, by his own definition, if you accept his own words to say nothing of those of anyone around him, he is a manipulator and a pimp. He is someone who has made his fortune from human trafficking, and I don't view him as being this bulwark against cancel culture or in favor of any values that I, as someone on the right, wish to hold. Well, 
Uh, Jonathan McMahon wrote in the European Conservative a piece that went deep inside Andrew Tate's operation and affirms why I believe my position was the correct one. The piece is called Inside Andrew Tate's War Room, and Jonathan Van Maren joins me now. Jonathan, good to talk to you. Thanks again for your help on uh, Friday night at that event. Oh, it was awesome. Great to be with you again. So, I mean, just for people that haven't paid attention to this, in some ways, this is just an online story. The only people that I've ever heard say anything favorable about Andrew Tate are people that have said it on Twitter, where we tend to see this reflection of the world that isn't necessarily consistent with the one outside of it. But clearly, he is real. He's a real person. He's made real money. He has real fans. And I would say he has real victims. So why did he attract your attention in the first place? Yeah, well, like... Like you and a lot of other people, I didn't hear about him first online, and it was one of these influencers that popped up, and at first I just kind of ignored him because he seemed to be one of these guys who was really fixating uh, on the sort of manosphere critique of feminism, but also a lot of workout tips and stuff like that. Not particularly interesting, but um, as you know, I do a lot of presentations on the dangers of pornography at high schools, and his name started coming up among young guys at Christian schools all the time. And that's what kind of prompted me to start looking into him a little bit more. And I realized that he may just be an online phenomenon, but as you know, online phenomenon have real world impact. And this guy had billions of views on TikTok alone. He has legions of young male followers. And he was essentially using these very clever social media clout tactics to accrue enormous numbers of impressionable young men with sort of an influencer prosperity gospel version of toxic masculinity and then leveraging those fans into paying into his online courses, uh, things like the War Room, uh, the the PhD course or Pimp and Hose degree and Hustler University. And these are just one of the many ways Andrew Tate has made an obscene amount of money. Uh, For years, there have been these people that have kind of made a a fortune and a name on this pickup culture stuff. I mean, you had Tucker Max back in the day, Roosh, uh, whatever his last name was. This is, I'd say, far more insidious than that, because we're not even talking about, you know, here's how you, you know, put on some confidence and trick a girl into bed. I, I mean, what he's telling people is how you manipulate and use young girls, vulnerable girls and women oftentimes to make money in the porn business and and, you know very explicit is what he's doing and and talking about doing there and he takes great pride and joy into it and i mean you and i disagree on a number of things in in the sense that i'm a libertarian and and you are not so this but this is me not me making a a a legal or, or moral judgment about any individual people that for whatever reason may choose to go into this he he is not an example of that nor are the people that he tries to bring into this world yeah, let's unpack that a little bit, because I think most any listener who's aware of Andrew Tate will know that he's been charged by the Romanian authorities on counts of sexual assaults and human trafficking. Uh, he's consistently attempted to downplay the charges. He's insisted to interviewers like uh, Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens uh, that he's merely being uh, accused of trying to help uh, women make money on TikTok, that he never took any of the money for himself. And so it's really hard, I think, for people who aren't doing any 
research into this guy to figure out what the truth about him actually is. Because the public image he projects is of this hyper-masculine, incredibly wealthy role model for young men. And that all he's trying to do is telling guys to get out of bed, to work out, to get jacked, uh, and to make a lot of money in what he calls the real world. Uh, that you know women are only going to want to sleep with somebody who looks like him, makes money like him, drives cars like him. He's kind of presenting himself as sort of like uh, Jordan Peterson, but with muscles and a couple of uh, a couple of uh, kickboxing championships under his belt. And now, most recently, he's announced that he's converted to Islam, and he makes a, a pretty big show of talking about his Muslim values. The, that's the sort of the public Andrew Tate, but the private Andrew Tate is where things get a lot more interesting because you have to ask yourself, how did he make his tens of millions of dollars? What is he advising the people who are members of his exclusive war room to do? And that's where things get really interesting because he has now admitted that he made a lot of his money um, with his brother Tristan Tate, who lives with him in their compound in Bucharest, Romania, uh, running what's called Cam Girls or OnlyFans accounts, where essentially they partnered in their in their in their terms I would say they just partnered with girls and then everybody got rich because they put girls on camera subscribers pay to see these girls do various sexual things on camera or take their clothes off on camera and this was a mutually beneficial uh, relationship and what they're being accused of by Romanian authorities is utilizing what law enforcement refers to as the lover boy method to essentially manipulate young naive girls uh, into r romantic relationships with them where they have romantic expectations. They think they're in a dating relationship. Uh, these girls often think that they're on the way to marriage and family and then use the emotional connection that they establish with these girls to manipulate them into what's colloquially referred to as sex work. In short, to get them on camera making money uh, for the Tates. And so he's admitted to doing that, and in his interviews he lies. He says he did that seven to ten years ago. Um, there's uh, there's rock-solid evidence, including his own video testimony, that he was doing this just a couple of years ago. He was still doing this during the pandemic. And the reality is that the Tates built their fortune in the pornography industry, and interestingly, also, uh, um, in, in Andrew's case, running casinos. And so he, he always talks about how his entire role in life is to break men out of the slave mind. And the reality is the only reason he got rich to begin with is by pushing products that enslave men, which is gambling uh, and pornography. And it's, it's quite rich to watch him condemn pornography now when the reality is that he built his entire empire on pornography and as both the recently released indictment by the Romanian authorities it got released last week indicates as well as the uh, investigation I did with my uh, with my fellow investigator uh, Stefan Moans indicated um, what he's actually been doing is employing psychological warfare against naive women and younger girls in order to get them into the porn business. Uh, before we get into the war room, there's just a fundamental flaw in his side of this argument, because the whole point, whatever people think of it, of OnlyFans, is that any woman around the world can just open her computer and do all those acts that you just mentioned on there and make a lot of money. What does he bring to that table? What, what does he contribute to this, if not trying to bring a girl or woman in who otherwise wouldn't have done it? 
Well, that's exactly right. So if you listen to him in his interviews with with Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens, and one of the reasons, honestly, um, um, that my friend Stefan and I were very motivated to kind of try and find a lot of information about what was actually going on is because Tucker Carlson and Candace Owens are two very significant commentators on the right. And when they decided to platform uh, Andrew Tate and essentially sympathetically display his case uh, to a conservative audience, I thought it was really important to present a conservative audience with an alternative view of what this guy was up to. And yeah, in his interviews, he essentially claimed like, look, I'm being criminalized, in his words, for being nice to girls and for trying to help them make money. Um, when the reality is, as you point out, um, you know, what's Andrew Tate necessary for, for a girl to go on OnlyCams, uh, or OnlyFans, pardon me, right? She can just start up an account, uh, she can start um, engaging in, in, in pornographic behavior, and she can make money. The reality is that even inside the War Room chat logs, uh, both Andrew Tate and the men who participate in the War Room, they all emphasize that the strategy here is to get girls onto social media to act as what they call thirst traps and to go onto OnlyFans, but to hold the purse strings and to ensure that all of the money is going directly to Tate, which is why he refers uh, to the pimp and hose degree um, the way that he does, because he t- they're, they're pimps. What do the pimps go- do? Pimps get all of the money. They financially benefit um, from essentially trafficking girls in public. And the war room that we keep referring to here, this is his, I guess, what, self-help training program, whatever you want to call it. Men pay $8,000 a year to be a part of this. And, you know, a lot of this you could just say, you know, well, well, what are these pathetic saps up to? But I, I don't actually view it as that benign when you look at how these men are being told to treat women. I mean, some of the so-called rules that you've reported on that men are told to employ with women is that, Uh, No male friends should be allowed. You should always be in a position to dominate. Sex is a weapon and not the goal. And I mean, look, in some cases, you may find some pathetic guy on his couch that looks at this and does nothing with it. But you could also see this wave of Andrew Tate's that take this and start to put this into effect. Well, let me read you in the context of what you just said, how Andrew Tate describes his war room now to all the journalists who are asking him questions. He describes it as a network of men that promotes self-discipline, motivation, and confidence building while giving members access to thousands of professionals from around the world who encourage personal responsibility and accountability, emphasizing the importance of taking ownership of your choices and actions. And this, of course, is completely primed to let conservatives know that he's one of them, to let those who are suspicious of mainstream narratives, those who are suspicious of what he calls the matrix or the the matrix or the deep state. He's trying to signal to people essentially, even like you and I, that he is one of us. And that when the Romanian authorities decided to go after him and charge him with sexual assault and human trafficking, that in fact, they were merely persecuting him for holding traditional views. And that's yeah, it's just some feminist witch hunt, that that type of attitude. Yeah, exactly. In fact, he said to, to guys like Piers Morgan, like, look, any of us can be accused of this at any time and end up in precisely the same situation that I am. And the way that we did our investigation is actually uh, we got from a source um, thousands of pages of private chat logs from the war room that show what Andrew Tate is actually teaching. Now, these documents, the document cache that we have access to and that we went through to build uh, our investigation um, that was published at the European Conservative were uh, verified by the BBC um, as well as uh, Rolling Stone magazine. 
they went through these uh, some of these documents and they came to different conclusions on other issues. We were mainly focused on what is Andrew Tate doing with the war room and what is he teaching the men? And what we broke down with the rules, etc., that we detailed was essentially what he's doing is trying to teach the men to, well, pimp hoes, as, as PhD actually says. Um, that's how he refers to women. He refers to women as um, people who are merely programmed. And the goal of a member of the war room is to deprogram them and then reprogram them to be doing sex work. And we open our investigation with a, with a pretty, I, th- I think you'd agree, chilling story of his conversation with a young woman named Jasmina Valentina who he met and and she completely falls for him. And then she says to him, "Um, I'm religious. I believe in God. I don't believe in posting, you know, lingerie pictures. I don't believe in doing OnlyFans. Um, I have some moral boundaries. um, But if you're loyal to me, then I'm completely loyal back to you. I would make a great wife. And she's clearly hoping this relationship goes in that direction. And so what he does for the men of the war room is he actually screenshots his WhatsApp conversations with Jasmina and then posts them on the war room with his commentary of what he's doing so that he can walk them step by step through the way he psychologically manipulates her. And you have all these comments coming in saying, oh, you should try this next or that was a really clever move. And he says, look, no women believe in God. If she says she believes in God, all you've got to do is deprogram her and then reprogram her. And you see step by step him psychologically manipulating her to isolate her from her friends and her family. And then once she's isolated, essentially say, don't ever leave the house that I've put you in. Um, Otherwise, you're clearly not invested in this relationship. And she's in the house conveniently uh, with the woman who does a lot of the OnlyFans business for him, who was incidentally arrested with the Tates and also charged uh, with human trafficking later. And in the indictment that was released too, when her name shows up, she's very frequently talks about beating the girls to keep them in line and things like that. And to give you one specific example, this girl thinks that she's in this relationship with Tate and he tells her, um, that he has heard from somebody in her hometown that she used to work in a sex club. And then he tells the men of the war room, I just made that up. I made that up to scare her and then to isolate her. And so you read through the messages and she's freaking out and saying, I never did that. And he said, well, you're obviously never going back to your hometown again. I only want you going out with me to prove that I can trust you. And so she agrees and he reports back to the men, look, now she'll never go back to her hometown again. She'll never go back to her family and friends. I don't want her seeing friends when she should be working on cam for me. And we, we begin the investigation basically going step by step through his initial conversations with her all the way down to her, him breaking her down and getting her to agree to do OnlyFans. And it's, a, it's really chilling and disturbing stuff. So to put this in the context of, I mean, you, you've sort of breezed by it here, but we saw Candace Owens and, and Tucker Carlson do to what I would say are, are rather atrocious interviews with Andrew mm-hmm. Tate. I mean, I, I've never really been a fan of Candace Owen. I, I've liked a lot of work Tucker Carlson has done. This interview, uh, he had no pushback. I mean, when I mentioned a, a couple of months back some criticisms of, of Andrew Tate on Twitter, people were saying, well, just watch this interview with Tucker Carlson. I said, that's the, the problem is that there was no pushback. There was no challenging him, even with his own stated uh, opinions on, on things and his own stated approach to things. Why has the right in your view, and I know this goes beyond your investigation, but why have so many on the right been so quick to embrace him? Is it just that contrarian impulse I alluded to before where we're so used to being canceled and marginalized that when we see someone being canceled, we just assume it's it's unjust? Or do you think there's something else here? 
I think it's multiple things. I certainly do think it's the contrarian position because I think that a lot of figures on the right now essentially react to things with a hermeneutic of suspicion, which is the mainstream narrative is always wrong and we must adopt uncritically the opposite narrative. I would differentiate between the two interviews. The, The reason the Tucker interview was so appalling to me was because he goes to visit two guys who have just been charged with sex trafficking. And in the first, the interview is over two hours long. And the first 40 minutes, he basically asks him a few softball questions about the case and then takes Tate's view completely without pushback. Um, Tate says, oh, you know, I'm getting persecuted for being nice to girls and for helping them make money on TikTok. And at no point does Tucker even, you know, look down, refer to the actual indictment and say, well, actually, this is what the indictment says. What do you have to say to that? He was not asked to respond to any of the actual allegations, which any journalist who's interviewing somebody charged of crimes would likely ask them to respond to what they're actually especially when you have no limitation of time i mean you flew all the way over there you could surely take the five minutes to ask that very basic question yes yeah it was just bizarre and then tucker basically says yeah i I believe you and they move on and spend two hours chortling a while tucker asks him various questions about different you know um, american political scenarios on throughout which um Tate shows phenomenal ignorance about almost every topic that he's asked about because they're, they're just not his wheelhouse. So um, he talks about pornography, which is ironic that, um, you know, Tucker's asking a, a pornographer uh, for his views on pornography. But even in his attempt to condemn some forms of pornography, Tate gets the science and the sociology wrong. He gets everything about transgenderism wrong. But it was basically just a bro fest. Candace Owens came in, and the difficulty with Candace Owens is that her style is a, is a toxic fusion of hubris and ignorance where she seems to think she knows a lot about a lot of subjects, but again, walked in with no research done whatsoever. She asked him a couple of questions. Um, So she'd presumably done a little bit of research beforehand, but again, very simple disprovable claims like, why am I getting persecuted for things that I did 10 years ago? We all regret things we did a long time ago, Tate says about his work in the porn business when there's videos all over the place of recent interviews he did talking about um, his cam girl business only a couple of years ago. I'm talking 2020, 2021, and 2022. You didn't have to get private chat logs from the war room like our investigation did to know that he was lying every step of the way in his interview with Candace and Tucker. Tucker for sure has an entire research team. Nobody with an operation that big doesn't have researchers who couldn't have handed him the answers to questions without him having to dive into the internet himself. Um, Candace Owens clearly wanted to believe him. Um, her defense of her uh, of her interview with him online was like frankly pathetic because she screwed it up. Uh, she didn't do a good job. She didn't do research ahead of time. Easily available information uh, she did not utilize. And the whole thing struck me as odd considering the fact that she uh, went scorched earth on Steven Crowder when those videos of, of him being uh, an awful person to his wife were released. So she went after him and called him an abuser and all kinds of names. And then somebody who admitted to beating a woman in his interview with her and admitting to having done pornography, but just lying about how long ago it was, etc., basically got a free pass from her. Um, it's really, really hard to figure out unless you take the incredibly cynical approach of just saying she was clout chasing, which is probably the simplest answer. Yeah. 
Well, to put a trite little bow on this, the enemy of your enemy is not, in fact, always your friend. The piece out of the European Conservatives is a very important one to read, and again, don't get sucked into this belief that just because uh, people you don't like don't like someone, that they are worthy of your admiration or support. Inside Andrew Tate's War Room at EuropeanConservative.com, Jonathan Van Maren, always a pleasure, sir. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much, Andrew. That does it for us for today. We'll be back tomorrow with a very special edition of The Andrew Lawton Show, a full sit-down with my colleague Candace Malcolm, back from maternity leave with lots of great plans. You'll hear a little bit about that tomorrow. But in the meantime, thank you, God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.